is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode. Bonus episode of the WTF Bach Podcast. Hi everyone, Evan here saying hi after a hiatus. This is the first of what I plan to be several, maybe two or three bonus episodes here in the middle of our journey through the art of fugue. Here's the reason for the delay between this episode and the previous episode. I somehow found myself engaged to perform the complete musical offering, which is a work I had until that point sort of avoided because it's so daunting. But that's not all. After I played it, I received an enormous amount of feedback, way more than usual, about the story of the piece. I love that so many people know the story of this piece, but it somehow brought to my attention something that was well, a little suspicious. It seemed that everyone who knew about this story had the wrong idea about it. So I did some research and I came across this book, a 378-page book written by one author who essentially is spreading rumors, spreading lies. But what's worse, this book masks itself as a piece of real Bach scholarship. It uses footnotes, bibliography. Essentially, if you're not a Bach scholar, you would have no reason not to believe every word of this book. But again, the premise of this book, the agenda of this entire book, puts forth nothing more than this author's twisted, very misguided perspective on Bach and this piece, and in short, it made me furious. I've never read a book so quickly in my life. I was tearing through the pages as if I had some egregious crime to solve, and I do. And so I've made it my work in these upcoming weeks to make an episode devoted to understanding what pseudo-Bach wisdom is, how you can tell the difference between facts and fiction with Bach, and hopefully dissuade anyone from believing this rather misguided Bach book. But today's episode is, as promised, listener's choice. So I've chosen three pieces from the list of works that you all sent me because they're interesting, short, and fun to talk about. These works are the Preludes and Fugues in C-sharp minor and E minor, both from the Well-Tempered Clavier, book one, and the Capriccio on the Departure of the Beloved Brother. So let's begin with the E minor Prelude and Fugue from book one. Here's Pierre Hantai playing the Prelude. Thank you. 
Okay, so firstly, in order to play a piece well, you should strive to find the origin of the work. And the origin of most of the preludes and fugues from book one is in the notebook for W.F. Bach, his eldest son. Now, in this little notebook, not only do we have early drafts of what became the inventions and symphonias, but we also have early drafts of the beginnings of the well-tempered clavier. And for me, this is one of the most fun things to see to see how something so ornate began as a much more humble endeavor. And here's what I mean. We all know this prayed and fugue as the one that has this incredible oboe line up top here. Right now, I should mention I'm playing on a temporary setup. I don't have any acoustic instrument with me, so I hope you don't mind this little portable clavichord I'm traveling with. I find it quite expressive. Anyways, this oboe line was only added afterwards. The early version of this prelude is this. ends like this. So this entire A minor section, the section that's marked presto, which sounds like this, that was all added later. And this is a great insight into Bach's revision and his skill. I think most artists in revision, we tend to edit out, we tend to cut, delete words, slash and burn baby. But Bach, so skilled, always goes from simpler to more ornate. And it's really only a master craftsman who can do this. And seeing the construction laid bare like this, just this left-hand line in these chords, can help us when we want to approach the way we voice a chord. We see Bach went from writing chords that are sometimes in two notes, three notes, or four notes with stems facing various directions to suddenly this oboe aria up top, and then the stems are very carefully drawn. Two stems facing downwards, implying two accompanying separate voices and the oboe aria on top. So then we can imagine that it's an oboe up top being accompanied by now two separate flutes. Now everyone wants to ornament Bach, and that's one of the great things about this music. We can all add our own ornaments. It gives the piece our personal touches. And I remember being in a piano competition when I was 16 years old, and one of the girls in the competition played the opening chord like this. And I thought that was so cool. It was such a great way to ornament this E minor chord, to go like this. So myself, I actually copied this for years. but. As soon as I started looking at the way that this piece was first imagined by Bach, this shows, playing it like this, that you haven't really paid attention to the origin. This is not an arpeggio of an E minor chord. This is not simply an E minor chord. It's polyphony. It's two accompanying parts below, carefully notated under a third part. And what's really fascinating is this chord right here. This is bar 15. I urge you to pull out your scores if you have one and look at the way that Bach stems these chords here. In the right hand alone, it sounds like this. But when you look at it, these two lower voices here, which sound like this, are stemmed differently both times. You see, 
what happens at first is that one voice crosses over the other. So one voice goes like this, and the other voice goes like this. So when you put them together, it does sound like this. But if you're actually playing it on an instrument like the clavichord or the piano, which can inflect, you are able to make this sound differently. You could change fingerings, you can bring a certain voice out, you can make it sound different like this. And that's really high-level Bach playing. That's really paying attention to the polyphony, to the different voices. You see, if it were two flutes playing both these parts, each one of their tones would be different. Now, let's move on to the fugue. It's a two-voice fugue, and I was told by one of my teachers when I was studying this piece that this fugue is a joke. This fugue is meant to make us laugh. Why? Because two-voice fugues don't exist. Because a fugue is three or more voices. A fugue with only two voices is an invention. Besides, there are two rows of parallel octaves in this fugue. Okay, it sounded convincing to me, but then I opened up the famous counterpoint book Gratis Ad Parnassum by J.J. Fuchs, written in 1725. Now this is something that Bach was most likely familiar with, and even if Bach were not familiar with it, it captures the essence of the understanding of fugue in 1725. Anyhow, the opening chapter of fugues begins, first I shall show you how to write simple two-voice fugues. And I thought, hmm, well, okay, Fuchs spends an entire chapter showing how to write two-voice fugues. So could this fugue be a joke? Well, what about these parallel octaves? Well, I came across this passage in the third partita for keyboard. And in this prelude for his sons. The more you look, the more you realize that Bach will include parallel octaves when he means to intensify something, and not when he means to joke about something. And then of course you think about what the well-tempered clavier is. This is the first instance in history of a prelude and fugue in every major and minor key. The first tone row in history in the last fugue. Triple fugues, double fugues, preludes in the form of double fugues. This is some pretty wild and intense stuff, so why would he include a joke in this fugue in E minor? Well, the short answer is, this fugue is not a joke. It's a very serious fugue, and two-voice fugues do exist, and you must play this fugue with serious intent. Also important, note the ending. If you look at all of Bach's preludes and fugues in the Well-Tempered Clavier, we see that if he adjusts the lengths of the ending, he always, with one exception, goes from shorter to longer. So in the early version, he might end on a half note, but in the later version, he ends it with a whole note. But this fugue is that one exception. The early version ends like this. And the later version ends like this. He abruptly takes it off. It's important that you do not hold that last chord here. You do not add a fermata. This whole notion, in fact, of holding chords at the end of a piece is really a post-Baroque notion. But we didn't even have that historical knowledge to think that. Why else would Bach write a bunch of deliberate rests at the end of this fugue if he wanted us to hold it out? Let's listen to Pierre Hantai play the whole fugue.
that's a man who pays attention to his rests. Okay, on to the C-sharp minor prelude and fugue. I won't actually spend time on the prelude. Just suffice to say that the final version of the prelude, the revised version, we could call it, is an enlarged version of the earlier drafts, not quite to the extent that the E minor is, but it is important to see how and where and why, especially before you get carried away, counting up all the measures or notes in box works looking for hidden meanings. It's important to see that the revisions stem from musical reasons. But obviously, he was involved in making beauty, not in secret codes. The fugue is one of two five-voice fugues in the Well-Tempered. It's funny because our E minor fugue in two voices is the only two-voice fugue, and this fugue in C-sharp minor is one of two five-voice fugues. And it means that all other fugues, and indeed all other fugues for his keyboard repertoire, are in three or four voices, except for that one six-voice fugue in the musical offering. But besides being a five-voice fugue, this fugue in C-sharp minor is the only triple fugue in the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And since, in the grand scheme of this podcast, we're about to hit upon our first triple fugue in the Art of Fugue, we're now going to get a snippet of triple fugue analysis here from a much younger and earlier Bach. The fugue subject itself is in four notes. Now this... For those of you familiar with the B-A-C-H spelling of Bach's name in musical notation, is only one half step off. B-A-C-H sounds like this. And if I were to transpose that into C-sharp minor, it sounds like this. But this fugue subject here is... Did Bach know this? It's hard to say, but he was probably aware of this, yes. And in all triple fugues of Bach... It is sort of difficult to imagine that Bach is creating three subjects in one fugue without thinking about three persons in one god, without thinking about the trinity. And you can usually find in his triple fugues one voice which is doing something like this. And it has been suggested that this voice, this snaking-like voice, is the Holy Spirit itself descending onto the people and flickering like tongues. You can see this in the great St. Anne's Prelude and Fugue, when all of a sudden he goes into C minor from E flat major, and the subject sounds like this. This has been suggested that this is the Holy Spirit. And in a triple fugue, you have usually God the Father, which is involving some perfect interval, that of a perfect fifth or a perfect fourth. And you have God the Son, which proceedeth from the Father, and it is usually made out of something other than perfect intervals. Here, although this does enter the realm of hypothesis, it's not impossible that Bach himself was thinking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit when writing this fugue. Now, God the, the, the Son, the man, this could actually be related to the Bach theme itself, though one half-step removed, because if anyone truly believed that Jesus was made out of the same flesh and blood and organs that Bach himself was made out of, Bach believed this. But just one half-step removed. God the Father is this final third theme here, which enters like this. And it is funny that we get this triple repeated note. Because in the Art of Fugue, as we'll begin to see in the next episode about the triple fugue, we again get this... So we can begin to see some of the vocabulary that Bach uses when he's creating triple fugues. We have one 
theme which is in perfect intervals, one which is not in perfect intervals, and one which is very snake-like and wavy. And in this fugue, if I were to actually speak of these themes in terms of the Trinity, we have God the Son first, then the Holy Spirit, then God the Father, but it's only in this fugue where it is in that order. Every other triple fugue from this point forward always goes God the Father in these perfect intervals, then God the Son, something coming out of these perfect intervals, and then God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to have now Pierre Hantai play this five-voice fugue, and I'm going to speak over it while he plays. There's the third voice. fourth voice on top, and the fifth voice even more on top. There's an entrance in the tenor, again in the tenor. in the second alto. Now double entrance in the lower voices as the Holy Spirit theme comes up top. The bass picks up the Holy Spirit theme. Now we have the Holy Spirit taking over and we're gonna get our third theme here, God the Father. You hear it in the bass. And in the soprano now, God the Father. And the bass, God the Father. way down low, that B-A-C-H theme. Up top now. All three themes at once. Here, the Holy Spirit theme drops out. It's just God the Father and God the Son.
greatest deceptive cadences in history. Think it's over until this. Ah. Now, just in my own defense, I'm not really sure if I actually espouse thinking about Bach's music like this. The truth is, we will never quite know what was going through the man's mind. Of the two ways of thinking about Bach, which are very, say, subjective, one which means counting all of the numbers and counting the bars in the work, and the second which means reading rhetoric, religious rhetoric like this, into the fugues, this one is the more plausible of the two when looking especially at vocal works like the St. Matthew Passion and the Mass in B minor and all the cantatas and things like this. But of course, in the end, we will never know. Just nice to think about that. It's possible. This is certainly possible that Bach could have been thinking about such a thing like this. We see Bach doing things that are not dissimilar in the vocal works, sort of supported by the text. So why not do this in the keyboard works too? Okay, now the Capriccio on the departure of a beloved brother, one of the earliest works we have of Bach. Indeed, it is probably the earliest one that still finds its way into concert halls. He was 19 or so when he wrote it. It is titled in Italian, and it has a story attached to it. Bach's brother was leaving to join the Swedish army, and the young Bach, grieving, not wanting him to go, pens the following piece. Now, any story with Bach, we need to be immediately suspicious. In fact, we look at the way that this work was passed down, and we see that the title was changed from Capriccio sopra la lontananza di il fratro dilitissimo, the beloved brother, to Capriccio sopra la lontananza del suo fratello dilitissimo, his beloved brother. But this change reflects nothing of the accuracy of the piece. In fact, this change reflects the desire for people to affix this story to the piece. Also, this piece is about a brother who leaves by postal coach, which is, according to Christoph Wolf, rather unlikely for someone joining the army. And in fact, this word fratro, brother, refers to sort of a brother in the communal sense, like, hey, brother, you know, this is a brother of music. This is not necessarily Bach's brother himself. But let's look at the individual movements here. First, it should be noted that this is a piece of program music. This is a piece where Bach himself writes in what is happening in the music into the titles. Tell that to your music appreciation teacher when he says that Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique was the first piece of program music. The first one is Arioso, Adagio. Ist eine Schmeichelung der Freunde, um dieselben von seiner Reise abzuhalten. It's a gathering of the friends to dissuade him, the brother, from leaving. This opening is just one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And in fact, so beautiful that Rudolf Serkin would often open his programs with this piece. I too opened many concerts with this very same piece. Here is a recording from Croatia last year.
Okay, I guess I don't know why the sound engineer is playing with the levels while I'm playing the piece. But uh, in any case, we get to see a few things that is just sort of remarkable and doesn't necessarily repeat itself in the later years with Bach, like this section here, which just sounds like pop music. I mean, can't you just imagine a pop song? this section here which is expressive with F and E flat and then F and E natural and then I just love that I don't really think that Bach after this early phase in his career ever really repeated that sort of personality that he has there when he's just a teenager now the next movement in German it's called ist eine Vorstellung unterschiedlicher Kasum die immer dem Fremde könnte verfallen. It's a warning of various dangers that could befall him, the brother, in the in the foreign, in der Fremde, in the in the wild, let's say. And this comes in the form of a fugue. It goes into G minor, which is the relative minor of B flat major where we started. And you could sort of imagine each voice in this fugue is a person saying, "But you know, there's a strange." Strange women out there, strange drugs, there's strange, you know, I don't know, strange lands and strange people. Uh, listen to this one. Now, we've modulated from G minor to C major, and that right there, that's setting up the next piece, which begins in F minor. So F minor, and it's this is really the heart of the piece. This is really the heart of the Capriccio on the Beloved Brother. It is a lament aria. It's a allgemeines lamento der Freunde, an all-out wailing of the friends. They're just totally lamenting that this brother is going to leave. Now, this is sort of the Baroque lament aria, like Dido and Aeneas, the famous aria from Purcell. This is really something worth looking into if you don't know what a, a lament aria is. It's something which has this bass line that just simply falls. And it goes over and over and over again. And you know, this 
Bach does this in the crucifixus of the B minor mass. This, this is really a, a medium to express grief and wailing. And it's also very important for the keyboard repertoire because this is one of the very few pieces where we get to realize figured bass. That means that Bach only writes the bass line and he writes numbers below the bass line to sort of show us the quality of the chord we're supposed to be playing. You see, if we were to just play it without realizing the numbers, we have something empty sounding like this. But really, that's supposed to be everything improvised there. So let's listen to this next movement now. Right now, that movement is certainly worth studying and comparing recordings to see how different artists will realize those numbers on top and improvise certain lines where there are, where there's nothing written. So the story continues. The next movement is titled "Al hier kommen die Freunde, weil die doch sehen, dass es anders nicht sein kann und nehmen Abschied." So here come the friends because they see that he cannot be persuaded, uh, and they take their leave of him. They Bid him farewell. You can hear the friends sort of buttoning up their jackets, wiping their noses and saying, you know, hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. We love you no matter what.
Right, so I had to switch to the Gustav Leonhardt recording because from that point on in my own recording, the sound was just clipped and out of control and I don't really know what happened. Anyways, from this point on in the Capriccio, the titles are in Italian and it becomes really interesting. This next piece is the imitation of the postman's horn. Okay, so exactly what is the, the postman's horn? Well, if you look up Deutsche Post, for example, uh, the German post office, you'll see that its logo is this little circular horn. Now, this is a post horn. It's a valveless horn. And what it is, is it's essentially a horn that the postman would blow into to announce that the mail is arrived. There was this entire culture of postmen who were proficient horn players back in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries that would ride around on horses and trade little tunes. And there was a whole musical culture exchanging little tunes. Now, this horn, because it's valveless, because it does not have any buttons on it, can only play the overtones. So for example, like the, these notes, and you could repeat a lot of notes on it. So, you know, you could do something like this, like... But you could not play, you know, this. So here's, here's actually a sample of what the post horn sounds like, and then you can understand what this next movement will sound like. That, without the snare drum perhaps, is often how people would hear that the male has come to their home. So in this next piece, the aria imitating the postman's horn, listen for this little figure that Bach imitates the horn with. Now that piece is in binary form, meaning that each section is repeated, each of the two sections is repeated, and you could hear Mr. Leonhardt there playing on the, uh, the petite wheat, the little 
stop, the second keyboard on the top of the harpsichord there, which will give you the differences between each time he repeats it. Now, the next piece, the final movement of the Capriccio on the departure of the beloved brother, is a fugue. And this is so wonderful. You could already see the 19-year-old Bach, an excellent master of the fugue. And now he decides that he's going to imitate that sort of complicated, repetitive postal horn melody, but he's going to alter it in such a way that you could make a fugue out of it. Because if you played this without altering any of those notes, in other words, just only to play the overtones, you might get something like this. Which sounds not unlike a melody that possibly one of these postmen would play. And Bach heard this and thought, you know, if I just tweak that shape a little bit to something like this... Instead of, maybe he could do, well, that might make for some interesting fuguing. So let's hear this master and let's wrap this episode up. And thank you very much for sending me these suggestions. I've really enjoyed talking about these pieces. WTF Bach Podcast. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. You want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at 
WTFR. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a, what a great, great day. day to be listening to WTFR. Thank you for listening. Listen, listen, listen. my car.